0: This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser.
1: And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing you the latest news in the world of business and finance.
0: And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries.
1: You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.
0: She says 2017 may well be a record-breaking year for U.S. philanthropy, and we'll talk about it more when she participates in a panel, or she may have already. Did you already do that panel? Uh, we've done one, we're doing another. <laughs> okay. there's, there's always a panel
1: near future. <laughs>
0: She's busy. Kim Lawton is president of Schwab Charitable here at Schwab Impact 2017 in Chicago. Nice to have you here on
2: Bloomberg Radio. Great to be here, thanks for having me. When you look at the charitable environment, what do you see? Um, well, for this year, 2017 could be among the, the Best years in recent history for investors to give uh, to charity for a couple of reasons. Um, first is the, the strong market performance. Um, it makes a difference, it right? It makes a huge difference because appreciated securities and investments are among the most tax efficient uh, gifts to charity. Um, why? Because when you give uh, an appreciated stock to charity, they don't have to pay capital gains tax on it. So you can give up to 20% more than you otherwise would be if you were to sell that stock on your own and then give the proceeds to charity. So having these appreciated markets, uh, you know, wildly uh, appreciated over the past, you know, eight, nine years um, gives a lot of people extra wealth. Um, The last quarter or so, we've seen 80% of the gifts to our donor advised fund be in the form of us appreciated stock. So people are wealthier and they've got more to to be sharing and they can do so tax effectively. Well, Um, and
1: the the donor advised nature, I don't know if people understand how that works and how wonderfully simple it is, but what what you really allow uh, here is for people to... uh, take an appreciation stock, maybe you've got a stock that pops on any given day, hand it over to Schwab, maybe if you've got a Schwab account you're trading in and your competitors, Fidelity, and other things like this, they'll make the trade that day it goes into the charitable account for you to give away whenever you want to give it away, right? And in, 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 in whatever size chunks you want to give away.
2: Right, and, and in addition to not having to pay the capital gains tax, you get a current year tax deduction on the day that it's contributed, and you can think over time as to when you want to grant it out, but your tax deduction's locked in. So that takes me to the second reason why this is a great year to give, is with, with tax reform in the works through Congress, if, if you believe that marginal tax rates could go down, if you believe the standard deduction levels could be raised, um, this is a great year to make lock in the, the benefits of of the higher marginal tax rates and also be able to itemize. So we see a lot of people looking at at bringing their giving forward this year to lock in that tax benefit and be able to itemize um, to the extent that those rules may change in the future.
0: What are the longer term implications of changes in the tax overhaul when it comes to charitable giving?
2: Um, It's really unclear and I know that that some are worried that by raising the standard deduction, um, by, by potentially reducing or eliminating the estate tax that the philanthropic sector could suffer over time, so we hope that's not the case. We think that as as the bill goes goes through Congress and and makes its way with with various amendments, that the, the charitable deduction we know will be, uh, we believe will be preserved, um, and that that'll continue to be a, a good way to offset taxes. Maybe maybe one of the few ways that's left in a simplified tax bill um, for people to be able to offset their their income taxes by giving to charity.
1: Uh, how uh, successful is this program be? How what what do you measure it on?
2: Uh, well, we've seen tremendous growth since inception uh, over the past 18 years, but 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 uh, in the past number of years, in particular, with the market strong, it's with people realizing how simple these accounts are to open. I mean, essentially, these are special purpose charitable accounts, much like IRAs are for retirement or 529 plans are for. College savings, we can we can open accounts for as little as five thousand dollars. People have you know millions and hundreds of millions of dollars in them also, but but our average client, you know, will start with five, ten, twenty, twenty five thousand dollars and be able to use this as a one stop shop to, to donate appreciated assets, get that tax benefit, and be able to give to charities over time. What are you seeing in terms of the younger uh, investors,
0: younger you know, uh, clients, if you will, are they interested in these kinds of accounts?
2: Absolutely. I mean, again, with a $5,000 entry point, anyone yeah. who's philanthropically minded and many of the millennials um, really were brought up to sort of think about uh, doing, doing well by doing good. So uh, they're, they're, that's part of who they are. Um, and so as they're, they're making their money, they're setting some aside for those that are working for companies that have uh, stock options and, and stock grants. They're using some of that appreciated stock uh, trimming some of their concentrated positions, putting them in charitable accounts, and and giving using those as their as their giving vehicle.
1: What is the average size of the, of the donations that come out of that? I mean, well, I, I should I should actually have you describe the process that you guys go through, because you have to vet the charity that the money actually goes to, right?
2: Um, right, but uh, any charity that's that's a five hundred one c three eligible, which are you know ninety nine point nine percent of the charities that people are wanting to donate to, we will we will approve. Uh, we're agnostic in terms of where it goes. We just make sure that we're pr- preventing people from giving to to people who are not charitably inclined, which can sometimes happen. Um, after disasters, people will solicit money. So we are, we're protecting people and making sure that it goes to charities. Um, people can give as little as $50. Um, so we we do handle mostly, you know, the everyday gifts that people give all the way up to thousands of dollars, uh, hundreds what, of thousands. What did you see, Kim, after like the hurricanes? Um, well, that the fires uh, where, yeah. we, where we
1: are in San Francisco. Right.
2: Absolutely. So the huge surge in giving, I think collectively, our, do- our donors have put put out more than $15 million to the various different disasters. Um, you see a, a surge usually pretty immediately online with grants and people making through their own mobile apps even um, the, the, to all these various different causes. And that's another reason why this is going to be a good year to give, because in addition to all the tax benefits, there, there are quite a few needs. So, uh, you know, multiple natural disasters domestically, many internationally, causes that people feel that are under threat. Um, there, there are lots of lots of reasons why people are wanting to put their money to work.
1: And what is a typical uh, demographic, or what is, what is the, what your typical customer using the charitable account uh, look like?
2: Um, range is, the age range is you know, from the millennial generation all the way up to uh, lots of 70 and 80 year olds. Um, using the account. Um, typically, it's when people do have, have accumulated some wealth in, in some appreciated investment that they start start with this average age is somewhere in the sort of late 40s, early 50s. But the market environment, obviously the most
0: important, right, to see in terms of trends of charitable giving.
2: Absolutely. If you look at overall <laughs> trends of giving, not just from donor advised funds, but it does, does tend to mirror the market. So as we have appreciated... Uh, you, as people feel wealthier and have extra money, they tend to be uh, more philanthropic. Um, our, our mission at Schwab Charitable is just to make sure we can unlock some of those appreciated investments for charitable good, help people save, invest, and give their money away.
1: It's, it's a fascinating program. I, love I, it. I, I I did this many years ago, and I'm so grateful. I did it because it's just made giving so much easier. And you know, I'll take a tax break. It's
0: very accessible. I like it.
1: Kim Lawton, uh, president of Schwab Charitable. Charitable, I said uh, in English. Mr. Bloomberg, <laughs> Bloomberg Radio. I'm Corey Johnson. <laughs> She's Carol Master. We are at the 2017 Schwab Impact Conference in Chicago, and this is Bloomberg.
0: Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. We
1: are in, in Chicago at the Schwab Impact Chicago. 2017 conference, and it's an interesting conference, not least which because it's gathered a lot of uh, investors and, and financial firms of all sorts, as well as investment managers. Uh, a Michigan-based uh, fund, uh, uh, Main State Capital Management is represented here, by another David Kudla, who's uh, founder and CEO of the company. Uh, and uh, describe to me your fund, uh, what is Mainstay Capital?
3: So Mainstay Capital Management actually is an independent uh, R.A., Independent Registered Investment Advisor. We manage about two and a half billion dollars.
1: And what kind of positions do you take? Do you, you, t- you take positions for clients or do you sort of run it almost like a fund?
3: No, we're, we're working with individuals, um, you know, one investor at a time, building a diversified portfolio to meet their long-term goals. And then we are tactically reallocating that portfolio based on their risk tolerance, time horizon, investment objectives.
1: And on some level, you guys have got a view on, on both markets and individual names. That's right. Which that
0: is sounds, why. Go ahead. why you
1: think we're gonna be buds.
0: <laughs> I'm going to go start with the Tesla because I've already been tweeting and people are interested in it. You are short on it.
3: Mm-hmm. Why? Well, and, and I always preface this with this is not, I am, um, uh, you know, I, I like what Elon Musk represents. He wants to change the world, he wants to do good things for society, Uh, he is an innovator, he is a visionary, all those great things. My play on Tesla is more because it's a story stock, right? There are no earnings, right? You can't value it on a fundamental basis. So it's about following the news flow and there's plenty of opportunities for short term buy and short and trade the stock that way. And most recently, it is, you know, the good news coming this summer with the uh, press shows, for yeah. the Model Three, but for those of us that understand the automotive industry and manufacturing and the kind of goals that were laid out, we knew production problems were coming. And when those are realized and get priced in the stock, look what we've seen: stock dropped Has, as much as. Uh,
0: uh, forgive me, stop, Jock. Right? Has it been a, a productive trade for you guys?
3: Yeah, we've traded. Uh, we've shorted twice now. Okay. Uh, profitable both times. Third short on now. I'm quite sure we'll be profitable again. So
1: is it so? I, you don't know, this. But I, I, I once upon a time was a money manager, and and uh, particularly was focused on the short side, and mm-hmm. of, and, and shorting on valuation. Uh, a lot of professional short sellers would say it was a fool's game because I think it does make sense at 100 times earnings. Still doesn't make sense at 200 times earnings, and, and, you know. But but I wonder when you look at this, what specifically what it is about the business? Yes, it is unprofitable business. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what is it about it that you you sort of see a fundamental case of rot?
3: The fundamental case is that we believe a lot of the people who own Tesla, or buy t- and it, look, if you've owned Tesla for three or four years or a year or six months, you've made a lot of money. Right. Right. right? And we think that the, the problem is when, when we have what people look at as a technology company, and there's a realization that they have to be a high-volume manufacturer, whether it's batteries, the gig factory, which right. has its own set of problems, or the Model 3 at in Fremont, California, where New United Motor Manufacturing built 74 cars Noomi, per worker. yes. NUMI, 74 cars so per partnership
1: worker. Partnership between GM and Toyota, right?
3: Between GM and Toyota, built 74 cars per worker at its peak. Tesla's building between 12 and 15, and in, if you know the background on that, it's it uh, it's a mess. It's
1: and NUMI failed. Uh, NUMI was a struggle, even at that production rate.
3: Well, I mean, there's a lot to that lot story, to the, but yes, yeah. Uh, So, uh, so Uh, my point is, is they're not. They're you know when he talks about production bottlenecks, I think if you someone went in there who understood manufacturing, the entire production system would look like a bottleneck. I mean, they talk about words I've never heard before, burst builds, uh, you you know, uh, and like I say, hey, I'm just a guy that used to work in a factory once upon a time, and. Uh, I don't know this new age of manufacturing, but I'm not quite sure right. they do either. And Elon Musk can spend all night at the Gigafactory for well, months, they, but that's not what the Gigafactory needs. It needed manufacturing experts six months ago there, making sure they could make batteries. But as you
0: said, it's an active trade. You're back and forth here with yeah. this one. It's yeah. not, because as you said, longer term people have made a ton of money. Yeah. I want to talk about some of the other things that you like, because you like technology, you like China, you like home construction. Um, home construction's an interesting one. What's your play there or thinking there?
3: Well, we look at it in the home... Are you talking about the home builders? The home builders and suppliers. We look at uh, really a secular story, cyclical story, and event-driven story. So to abbreviate that, the secular story is we had the fallout from 2007 real estate crash. So there's a rebuild in the industry because of that. We're about halfway through a cyclical cycle where new homes bottom at about 400000 Year to eight hundred thousand, somewhere above eight hundred thousand, about halfway through that cyclical cycle, the event-driven cycle. Quite frankly, where we added our positions at the end of August was because of Harvey, Irma, Maria. Just logical. Yeah. So and and we've seen A disaster uh, play, uh, if you will. Yeah. yeah September eighteen point nine percent growth in new home sales, highest in ten years, and the positive numbers keep coming in for housing.
0: We're, we've run out of time, I hope we can get you back here. I know, it's never enough, but there's lots of other ideas and I love that you're, you're talking specifics. Come back. Absolutely. David Kudla, is founder, chief executive officer, chief investment strategist at Mainstay Capital Management, more than $2 billion in assets under management, based in Michigan. I want to even talk about Michigan a little bit more. Joining us though here the on Schwab Impact, this is Bloomberg. Holiday just around the corner. We've got five reasons investors might want to uh, think about to give thanks. With more on this is Jeff Kleintop, Senior Vice President, Chief Global Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab, on-site at Schwab Impact 2017 here in Chicago. Nice to have you back with us. It's so great to be with you. Tell us about the environment
4: right now. You know, it's a pretty good environment. Investors do have a lot to be thankful for, but their questions have changed over the course of the last, I'd say, six months or so. And I know advisors here at this conference are hearing it too. Questions used to be about the risks that could topple a weak or fragile global economy, Uh, things like the Brexit or North Korean threats or what have you. But investors have begun to recognize that the global economic backdrop is pretty good right now, with every one of the world's 45 largest economies growing this year for the first time in a decade. But they're worried it's too good to last. And that's what my emphasis here has been at this conference, trying to help them understand that it isn't too good to last. I think we've got at least another twelve months of solid gains in the markets on the back of that broader
0: economic and earnings growth. Is it just about earnings and and the economy, I think global economy? Re- yeah, I think it really is. I mean, even what is the bond market though, Jeff? Telling us when we mm. we take a look at the flattening yield curve and we're just trying to figure out, okay, so what does the bond market know that we maybe don't?
4: It's important to keep an eye on the on the bond market. Historically, when the bond when the yield curve inverts, it's a Right, Perfect signal of a recession for 50 straight years. Pretty reliable. <laughs> you know, but a flat yield curve, not so much of a correlation at all with actual economic earnings growth. So a flatter curve, something to keep an eye on. An inverted curve, something to really worry about. I think that the market is rooted in better economic and earnings growth, and that's likely to continue. Even we can see it in countries like South Korea, where you think geopolitical risk is ground zero, yet earnings and... Uh, The stock market in South Korea are up over 20% this year. If they're not worried about geopolitical risk in Seoul, South Korea, we probably don't need to be too worried about it here in Chicago, Illinois.
1: Is China helping to drive that global economic growth or a revival of China's GDP? I think so.
4: And so we do have to keep an eye on China's economic growth pretty closely here. If they were to see a slowdown in the first half of next year, that could certainly put a kink in global economic growth. But what Singles Day just told us, right, that the world's biggest shopping day, Singles Day for Alibaba, six times bigger than Black Friday here in the U.S., told us that the appetite among consumers in China, right. which are now the ones driving the economy, look pretty good.
1: Well, what? once again, is that, is that believe I mean, yeah. again, with China, is that, are those numbers believable? I mean, sing, the Day's numbers, for example, don't just happen in a day. It's many weeks of sales that they announce on a given day. And so that number is so highly manipulated just by the very nature of the way that they do it. I, I, I would be reluctant to use that as an economic indicator. But well, you're the economist, here <laughs> Well, you not? Know, the one strategist, of things, at least. I like
4: to do is is listen to the companies that, that are Western companies that sold through there, right? So, okay. you know, Macy's has a portal, Nike, uh, many of the big global retailers we know and, and trust their numbers. Um, they've talked about what an amazing sales holiday it was. And, and they certainly talked about it a lot in their fourth quarter earnings reports a year ago. I expect do, them to do so again this time. So, it looks like for more trustworthy, sources, uh, we had a pretty good signal today.
0: When you look at things like debt levels around the world too, whether it's consumer or commercial, how do you feel about that though?
4: Yeah, debt levels are a problem, but usually debt exacerbates, prolongs or lengthens a downturn rather than causes it. So as we enter the next one, we've got more debt than we've ever had before. It could perhaps make it a more problematic and, and deeper and longer episode.
0: I mean, ultimately at some point, Jeff, right, we're cyclical, something will pull us back.
4: Right. Well, the interesting thing is, you know, in the last two times cycles ended, it was a bubble bursting whether it was tech or housing. This time we don't see a bubble akin to that. And so we think it's maybe a more normal economic cycle, something you might have seen in the in the 80s or the 70s or even the 60s. And that means we're in this kind of melt-up environment late in the cycle inflation begins to pick up. You know, profit margins are high, things do well. We're in that stage where actually stocks tend to post double-digit returns. Eventually we go into the downturn, but it may not be the same as it was when it was a bubble bursting.
0: Could we be missing something? There are a lot of people I mean, who missed a, the last crisis. Not, no sorry. offense, but I mean, sure. many people miss that.
4: You know, it's funny. So I have kind of a framework that I like to apply potential bubbles to. If you look at all the last, say, four or five major bubbles that burst, they all inflated a 1,000% over 10 years. And as I apply things to that sort of interesting, the number one thing I'm asked about is, is Bitcoin a bubble? It's up 1,000% in a year, um, but no, I don't think it is. I don't think the FANG stocks qualify on that basis as a bubble similar to the tech bubble. Looked at central bank balance sheets. Again, it's not not that we don't have above-average valuations or high levels of debt, but none of these bubbles that I think people are most often pointing to are the ones that are going to take us down. It may be something we don't see, but it's certainly not the things I think people are focused on. What about a political bubble? Interesting, what do you mean?
0: I don't know. I just feel like we're going through a churn politically, globally, where people are pushing back. And, and that's certainly what well, we do see. Something coming out of Washington, whether it's a certain reform or overhaul that we're trying to get through and it doesn't happen, that does impact the markets.
4: seems to, in the short term, although over the course of the last year, we really haven't seen much of that, have we? It's been interesting. I, I have a, My top tweet of the year has uh, put out at the beginning of the year, the biggest political risk for investors in 2017 is putting too much emphasis on political risk in 2017. Politics are emotional. investing's emotional. We put them together. It's emotional squared. People can make bad decisions. So far, we have not seen actual policy ramifications that match the rhetoric. If we do, then I worry about it. We haven't yet.
1: Well, we, indeed, we haven't really seen a lot of policy. We've seen the struggles in overturning health care, uh, Affordable Care Act. We've seen the struggle. We're seeing the struggles with it. We know the House passing a bill that the Senate already says is dead on arrival. Mm. Uh, and so we'll see what we get out of that policy-wise, too. But yeah, nonetheless there is a suggestion of major changes in tax policy that could have some economic repercussions. Do you think that if we do see a big corporate tax cut, it's really going to lead to more earnings growth? Um, At the margin, there might be a little bit more
4: after-tax earnings growth for some of the sectors that pay something closer to the statutory rate. Which you say, smaller cap stocks? Mm, Smaller cap stock, financials, for example. It's not tech. Tech's been leading the market this year. They have an 8% effective tax rate. It's not going to do much for them. So it's interesting, I don't think the market's pricing in a positive outcome for that legislation. No, I don't think so. I I, I don't see it in the leadership of the markets. I don't see it in analyst estimates or economist forecasts, at least not yet. Is
0: that because the market doesn't think it's going to happen? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Not to be a naysayer or anything. But also
4: because it's a minor thing. Look, every one of the world's major economies has cut corporate taxes in the last 10 years. The U.S. is the only one dragging its feet. Japan has already two further corporate tax cuts already baked into law for the next
1: couple of years. So
4: it'll have an impact on global companies. But remember, many of them already pay taxes in hundreds of countries anyway.
1: Joe Klein, SVP and Chief Global Investment Strategist for Schwab here at the Schwab Impact 2017 conference in Chicago. This is Bloomberg.
3: I'm driving my car. I turn on the radio.
5: Hey, how about you let me drive?
3: Oh, no, 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 no.
5: Who's gonna drive
1: you home? Honey, please, I'll do the
6: driving.
3: Drive on.
1: Excuse me, I wanna
5: drive. Just drive, me. Just drive baby. Just drive, baby.
1: Indeed it is, the drive to close. Uh, we will take a look at uh, what's going on in the markets right now with uh, Tony Davidow joining us right now. He's alternative beta and asset allocation strategist for Schwab's Center for Financial Research. Uh, and uh, Tony, explain to me exactly what, what it is that you do there for Schwab. Yeah, you know, it's a great question. So the Schwab Center for
6: Financial Research is an independent think tank within Schwab. And what really we're trying to do is respond to the sort of things that we're hearing from our clients, both our retail and our institutional clients. What are the, what are the challenges they're facing today? One, one of the areas we spent a lot of time on, which is kind of a nice segue uh, after the last segment, is we've done a lot of research on smart beta strategies broadly, and then develop a point of view that we share with our advisors so they can think about how to employ these in their portfolios.
0: Tell me about smart beta or strategic beta. I mean, I like to think of it commonly as indexing with a twist. And you're hoping to kind of reduce volatility, get a little bit more oomph out of your returns?
6: Yeah, so if you think about the kind of the evolution of indexing, the first generation of indexing is how do I provide cheap exposure to the various market segments? And if you think about what we've experienced now, it's strategic beta, smart beta, or even factor investing is used a lot in the industry. What you're really trying to do is figure out are there ways to improve the overall client experience? Are there ways to have better outcomes over time? Some of the strategies are really rich in academic rigor, things like fundamental indexing, Uh, There's factor research that goes back decades and decades. And what I think is different is many of these strategies have been employed by institutions for a very long time, but it's the packaging of the ETF that makes them available to the average uh, consumer out there. So we think that's a very good thing.
0: What about the transparency though of them? Because you can dice and slice all of this so many different ways.
6: Yeah, yeah, and and, and in fact, a lot of the work that we've been doing over the last couple of years as we've been trying to help our clients kind of understand what's going on is, the term is a broad term. Strategic beta, smart beta, really just means that I'm weighting an underlying index in a very different way than the market. And although they're all under the very large banner, they're actually quite different. Right. Fundamental is a value-oriented strategy. Momentum is a growth-oriented strategy. So a lot of the work that we've done is really trying to dissect those returns so you understand what it is that you're getting. And then when you think about putting the piece Together you have a better sense of how they're going to perform in a given market environment. But
0: there's no guarantee, because you can't really I mean everybody talks about back testing, but you know what? <laughs> it doesn't mean anything about what's to come.
6: Absolutely, and that's one of the things we emphasize. The the reality is although all of them might claim they outperform over the long run, the reality is they're very cyclical. Right. Right? This is a market environment that's rewarding momentum. Last year was a market environment that reported value-oriented strategies. So again, if we can dissect the returns, the individual investor understands what it is they're getting, some of the bets they're making along the way, then they're going to have a better outcome. We happen to have a core point of view that fundamental, which is a value-oriented strategy, actually complements market cap. Right? And the the combination mm-hmm. of the two, what we think we get, is we provide the okay, built what, uh, Market
1: cap, what do you mean market cap?
6: The traditional way of owning the index. So the S&P in its normal configuration providing right. the largest weight to the largest companies. Right. And if we combine the two, you get built-in diversification, you get the cost benefit because the market cap, first generation of indexing, typically are the cheapest ones. That's what is often referred to as the race to zero. Right. And then what we get with the strategic beta strategies, we at least get the opportunity to get that excess return over time.
0: Is it a 50-50 base, like waiting or?
6: We we don't have a 50-50 base. We have a a little bit of a bias built into all of our portfolios where we allocate more to fundamentally indexing based on the better risk adjusted results. We actually have come up with a framework that we look at and we incorporate across the various market segments. We look at the US, we look at the emerging. And in the emerging market, we've actually seen a pretty big difference in the return that you get when you fundamentally weight
1: something relative to market cap. And how long a a time period do you sort of, you you backed us presumably for a couple decades or something, uh, you could tell me. But but more importantly, when you look at a strategy, just sort of, this strategy tends to work most years, or this strategy tends to work over a course of a five or 10 year period, how do you do that? Yeah, and I I think that's really an important consideration. So yes,
6: we do look at the longest window possible. As, As a firm, we're biased to fundamental indexing because there's a lot of rich history and data. I can look at data going back to 1996. I can look at 10 years of actual results. So I'm a little skeptical of some of the newer strategies coming to the market. But I can look at them over a long window and I can see that they're gonna deliver the excess return. But when I meet with advisors or when I meet with clients, I'm always pointing out, not each and every market environment. This
1: year, they're lagging. Because well, value's gotten rocked the last two or three years. I mean, it's, 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 mm-hmm. it's kind of remarkable to see how poorly value is. I mean, let me rephrase this. Really good companies, companies that are generating free cash flow that have low cost to, to investors are not performing well in the stock market. Perhaps that's the inflection point. So I'll give you just kind of a data point on that.
6: You're exactly right. 2015, the market was dominated by four stocks, right? The Fang stocks dominated everything. But if you woke up January 2nd, 2016, like me, and you looked at the valuations of those companies, you might be a little alarmed. Not surprisingly, fundamental indexing was the best performing of the smart beta strategies in 2016 because they're focused on valuations. They're focused on sales, cash flow, dividends plus buyback.
0: But you could have made a lot of money on those FANG stocks also this year.
6: You, you, we're not saying ignore them. We're actually saying if I own them in a market cap, I'm getting that larger representation over time. But realizing that valuations at some point will revert, I like the combination of the two, and, and our view of the combination actually smooths that ride over time.
0: Do those valuations on those tech names have to revert, or can they just kind of grow into them?
6: Well, they don't necessarily have to completely tank or or revert, but the question is, when you get that large, can you continue to grow with the same rapid weight? So Facebook, Amazon, very large names have very large representation. I probably want to own them in my personal portfolio. I just don't know that they should be my biggest bets. So just really quickly, uh, in terms of sort of uh, fundamentally strong companies, what fundamentals matter to you? Well, fundamental indexing, at least in in the way that the Schwab strategies look at it, looking at adjusted sales, cash flow, dividends was bypassed. Adjust the sales
1: as defined by the company.
6: Uh, as all of this is really coming from publicly available information, so there's no independent determination. The beauty is that information is available. So as you screen based on those metrics, it's not surprising. Those are primarily value metrics. You have a little bit of a value tilt in the portfolio.
1: Tony David o, uh, we could talk forever, but we can't talk forever. Uh,
2: <laughs> not now, at least. <laughs> uh,
5: but Grace,
1: stuff. Tony David o, uh, from Schwab, uh, looking at uh, the Schwab Center for Financial Research.
5: Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth
0: move under my feet. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. Shake. Shake. All right, people. Let's move like we've got a purpose. Move
5: it Slide it all over. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more. but That name cracked me up.
0: Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, everybody. Bloomberg Markets, Carol Massa, Corey Johnson, live from Schwab Impact 2017 in Chicago. Time, though, for a look at some of the movers and shakers, winners and losers on this Thursday afternoon. Let's start with the S&P 500. If I look at the index today, uh, in terms of the split, you had 387 names higher today, 115 lower, four unchanged. I want to talk a little bit about Viacom. Uh, That stock is your number one decliner in the S&P 500. Shares of Viacom uh, down to down about 3.7%, down almost a dollar to $23.69 a share. And the reason why you had Viacom earnings uh, falling short of analysts' uh, uh, estimates, uh, subscriber fees falling by about 3%. While well, some of the loss can be attributed to shrinking pay TV audiences, which is really an overall industry problem, it is also a sign. Viacom's weakness in negotiations with distributors. Now, the owner of MTV and Nickelodeon saying the declines would continue through next September, sending shares, as we mentioned, they were down as much as 10% at their lows of the day, Corey, but finishing just down 3.7%, but nonetheless good enough to be the number one decliner in the S&P 500.
1: Uh, Shares of Time Inc., my former employer. uh, Mm -hmm. Shares of Time Inc. is a very different company than it was back when I worked there. But Shares of Time Inc. surging today. Shares rose 28% to close at $16.20. There is a bid out there. Uh, Meredith Corporation backed by the Koch brothers the billionaire industrialist looking at buying the company, stock flying, they tentatively agreed to support the Meredith author offer a, with an equity injection of more than $500 million in the offer. The market cap, well I should say, the market cap's not really important here, the enterprise value is what's really important. And the enterprise value for Time Inc. right now uh, is $2.5 billion, so uh, $500 million will help them get there, uh, Time Inc. has $1.2 billion in debt and about $300 million in cash. So, uh, again, the market cap is, is only a part of the story there. Uh, so, a very interesting uh, possibility. The merger could help both the magazine publishers, Meredith and Time Inc., team up in ad sales. But, of course, they're also looking at a lot of ways to reinvent themselves, both companies, looking at digital and trying to incorporate digital strategies. Uh, and this could help them sa- sell ads there as well. Again, chairs of Time Inc. a huge surge on that uh, takeover offer.
0: All right. I want to talk a little bit about Best Buy, uh, if I may. The number two decliner in the S&P 500. I pulled up a stock chart on the Bloomberg. I mean, this is a stock that has been all over the place uh, over the last six months. Up, down, up, down, up, down. Maybe that's the tale of retailers in this current environment, but nonetheless, down today in today's session. Best Buy down 3.6% to $55.25 a share. And this is happening after the company's uh, latest quarterly release. Keep in mind, we're getting a lot of those retail earnings. In fact, the gap will get shortly after the close today. But Best Buy falling. Uh, latest results raising fresh doubts uh, about its turnaround. The world's largest electronics chain posted third quarter comparable sales at missed analyst estimates as major hurricanes in Texas, Florida, and Puerto Rico and earthquakes in Mexico really trimmed revenue during the period, the retailer also set a later release date this year for Apple's iPhone, affected its performance. And as we mentioned, the stock, the number two decline in the S&P 500, but still, Corey, it's up about 29% here in 2017.
1: So there is a battle going on on Wall Street over the so stock of I hear. RH. Restoration Hardware.
0: You love this one. You love the videos from the CEO,
1: right? Oh, God. I'm sorry. I don't want to apply. Don't, don't Shares go Shares of Restoration Hardware uh, are heavily shorted on Wall Street. 47 percent of the float is sold short. So the company came out uh, with a, with its uh, pre-announcement of a, of what they say is going to be a strong next year earlier than they've ever pre-announced uh, uh, any sort of earnings numbers uh, in all the years that they've been public uh, with a suggestion that uh, the CEO, uh, Gary Friedman, wants to squeeze the shorts. Hmm. And if that was his goal, man, he did it. 26% rise in the stock, after wow. surprise uh, guidance, it was a pre-announcement uh, of the Q3 results and forward guidance ahead of uh, Analyst Day. Analyst Day uh, was today. So um, uh, a really big move uh, in this stock is companies sort of saying that they're going to have a better year than had been expected last year. But a lot of stuff in the in the release, if you dig a little bit deeper, didn't make sense. Like there was a delay in a store in west side of Manhattan that's now two years delayed. And they said that that's going to hurt results in the, in the next quarter. And there was a lot of weirdness in this one. So uh, Restoration Horror, RH, really interesting company. Stocks had a fantastic run this year. It's up. uh, 241%. The 241% rise in stock this year. But uh, a lot lot of issues around that company that's drawn the uh, attention of a lot of short sellers. I think those short sellers feeling that pain today.
0: All right, let's get to the volatility index report. And the VIX in the Thursday session down 10%. It was up 13% yesterday, down 10% today. The VIX closing on this Thursday at 11.81. This is Bloomberg.
3: All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave.
5: Wilson, where are you? Wilson!
6: Just what do you think you're doing, Dave?
0: We're going for the price on
5: Wilson. Open up the door. It's Dave. Who? Dave. Hey, Mr. Wilson!
1: Dave Wilson joins us right now, our stock senator with his stock. Of
5: the day, yeah, it's time to get smart, Corey. Specifically, smart global holdings. Been hearing this that for a long time. Are you saying we haven't been
0: smart for these past couple? I'm of just hours? saying that this Jeez. is the company's
5: name, okay? Uh, okay? They're a maker of memory chips for computers, smartphones, and other products. Uh, company raised $58 million through an initial public offering in May. The ticker is SGH. Now, Smart Global sold shares at $11 each. They rose as high as 38.24 last month before a second share sale, which people familiar with the matter attributed to some of the company's stockholders. While Smart Global fell after that sale, most of the losses were recouped today. The rebound occurred after the company raised earnings and revenue forecasts for the fiscal first quarter ending this month. And those forecasts sent Smart Global shares to a gain of more than 25%. Uh, the surge was well-timed, too, as a lockup period following its IPO expires on Monday. That means investors will be free to sell more shares.
0: All right, Dave Wilson, thank you so much for that. The Bloomberg Stock of the Day. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to
1: our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.